All right, Father Chad Partong is priest of the, of the Diocese of Alexandria, where he serves as pastor of St. Francis Cabrini. Oh, I forgot that in my talk. We have St. Francis Cabrini, who came to New Orleans. Yes. St. Francis Cabrini Church and School, and as Chancellor of the Diocese, ordained in 2003, Father Parton is the author of several books on regional and church history, including a biography of Bishop Auguste Marie Martin, the first bishop, bishop of Natchitoches. All right, for you people that are from, from Texas, when you read this, it's not Natchitoches. <laughs> it's Natchitoches. I know it's not spelled Natchitoches, but it is. Maybe we should, we should respell the name of the town so people would get it. He's also a published uh, poet and painter and avid gardener and musician, playing the viola and the violin. Father Parton is a brotherhood member of the Order of the Arrow. That's, that's a papal order, right, Father? No, no. no. <laughs> the Order of the Arrow. He earned his Eagle Scout Award in 1992. He's an Eagle Scout. So... Father will be giving slingshot and whittling lessons after the, after the... <laughs> Served as scoutmaster for Troop 94 while pastor at St. Paul the Apostle Church in Mansura. He serves on various boards and committees throughout central Louisiana, including the Louisiana His History Museum Board and Historical Association of Central Louisiana. Father Parton is a fourth degree member of the Knights of Columbus. That means he can't tell us how he got there and serves his assembly as faithful friar and a knight of the equestrian order of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Father Parton will be speaking today on the peace of Christ through the reign of Christ, enthroning the sacred heart of Jesus in our hearts, homes, and society. And so, without further ado, then, Father Chad Parton. Father, did you get the microphone? I need the mic you up. Put that in your pocket. Like, let me make sure it's on. I'll leave that to you. Okay, it's on. You know, every fact of Catholic. Louisiana history that he mentioned happened in New Orleans or in Acadiana. I'm here to testify to the fact that beyond your belief, there are Catholics north of I-10. <laughs> Believe it or not. Believe it or not. I invite you to come up. There's not many of us, but I invite you to come up. It's a joy to be with you here today. I want to begin by simply describing a social scenario and see if you can identify with it. Imagine a society with a bloated central government, an extended bureaucracy that affects every aspect of the citizens' daily lives. Exorbitant taxes to pay for that bureaucracy a complete collapse in respect for traditional morals, a society in which there is a large uh, welfare state that funds unemployment. 
imagine that there is an acceptance of homosexual behavior, that there is a complete uh, denial of the supernatural. A society which proclaims that God is dead and that man is the center of all. What would I be describing? Today. First century Palestine. First century Palestine. That's the world into which our blessed Lord was born. That is the world that confronted Peter and Paul. There is nothing new under the sun. Our adversary has no imagination. You have to remember that the devil is not creative. He cannot create. Therefore, he simply repeats himself over and over again throughout human history. That's why it is so essential that we understand history. Because sadly, we have been doomed to repeat it over and over and over again. The world that our blessed Lord encountered in that first century under Tiberius in the old Roman Empire is the same pattern that would emerge over and over again, particularly in time of revolution. It's what our ancestors encountered at the time of the French Revolution. The old Ashan regime had really broken down. It was not Louis XVI's fault. Louis XVI was surrounded by incompetent ministers who sadly were Enlightenment thinkers. Louis's government failed him. No one man could save the old monarchy. And as France descended into bankruptcy and chaos, it became a breeding ground for those destroyers who sought to build something new. That, of course, was always the watchword, new, something modern. Whenever you hear that word, please be suspicious. <laughs> new is not always good. We know that. God works good, but only by degrees. The devil works ill and always in a hurry. And those who are seeking to build a new society are always in a hurry. And what comes through that hurry is destruction. The revolution was not opposed by the church in the beginning. As the revolution began with the taking of the tennis court oath, when the estates general failed and was dissolved by the king, most of the clergy, including most of the bishops, supported the tennis court oath. They wanted a change. They wanted a reform in government. The old system was so broken. But as the revolution progressed and as the Jacobins seized control, after the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the establishment of the National Assembly and the Declaration of the Republic with the execution of the king and his queen, everything changes very quickly. And what changes 
is the secularization of the revolution. As the Enlightenment thinkers, the Freemasons, the Illuminati take control and take charge and begin to steer the course of the nation, they steer it toward a godless society. And it begins with the confiscation of church property. They didn't call it that. But the confiscation of church property, which led to the selling of church property, it led finally to the constitutional oath required of the clergy. That the clergy would be required to swear an oath forsaking any allegiance to any higher power outside of the National Assembly and the Republic. What did that mean in simple terms? It meant that the clergy had to renounce their allegiance to the See of Rome and sever all ties between the French church and the Roman church. And it was at that point where the people of the Vendée, and not just the Vendée, but in other places in France, it's at that point that the people said, enough. Enough is enough. When their priests had to register as non-juring priests, priests who refused the oath, when they were registered, when they were dismissed from their parishes, when they were sent home to their native villages so that they could be tracked and monitored, and when finally they were rounded up and gathered into protective custody, it was finally at that point that the people of the Vendée said, enough. They were willing to pay the higher taxes of the Republic. If you read their letters of petition to the National Assembly and to the provincial government in Nantes, it says over and over again, we'll pay double the taxes, but leave us our priests. But the priests were rounded up. Those who refused the oath. Those who did take the oath, and sadly there were some, out of the 774 priests, can you imagine 774 priests? Out of the 774 priests in the lower Loire Valley, 143 took the oath. The rest did not. That's a typical number. Very small number of priests took the oath. Those that remained faithful went back to their native villages, eventually placed under protective custody, and eventually met imprisonment and martyrdom. It was that spark that began the Vendée Uprising. And how did the government of France, the government based on the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which included the right of religious liberty, how did the enlightened government of France respond to its own citizens? They raised an army. Now you have to remember that in 1792, when the very beginning of the Vendée Uprising begins, France was already at war with Austria, Prussia, and the Netherlands. Enemies surrounding the country threatening her frontiers and borders. And yet at the same time that France is threatened from without, 
She musters an army of hundreds of thousands to march against her own people, to put down a rebellion in an area of France no larger than 10,000 square kilometers. And not just to put down a rebellion, but to perpetuate a genocide. There's a difference. There's a difference between putting down a rebellion and waging a genocide. What happened in the Vendée was a genocide for which the French government still refuses to offer any explanation or even recognition. Of the 350,000 people who died, men, women, children, babies, for one reason and for one reason only, for holding fast to their Catholic and apostolic faith, for refusing to accept the dictates of a secular government which pressed upon them priests who were unfaithful. They refused to accept the dictates of the National Assembly which legalized divorce. They refused to accept changes in the Mass and the liturgy. All they wanted was the faith that they had always known. And when that was threatened, that became the spark which led them to resist. We live, as you know, as you know daily, as you experience every day, we live in one of those moments in human history when all the different conditions that I mentioned in the beginning have once more come to pass. We live in a time when everything that we believe and everything that we hold dear is threatened, both from within and from without. It's not just a threat from an over-centralized government. It's not just the burden of oppressive taxation. It's not just the anguish that comes from inflationary currency. It's the anguish that comes from watching the moral decay of our communities as we see moral decay erupt into violence, which is always the end. Moral decay always leads directly to physical violence that will continue to escalate. We know that. The economic situation is not going to be improved. We know that. We're too far deep to dig ourselves out of the hole. We look at violence spreading across Europe, and it's no surprise what is going to come next. A general outbreak of conflict throughout the world. We know that. The devil repeats the same pattern. The 20th century has given us his blueprint. We know exactly what is going to unfold in our time. It does not take us by surprise. But as we're threatened from without, we also know that just in the day of, just as it was in the day of the Vendée, so it is for us, that we are threatened from within. The very institution that should be for us the source of peace and security 
and joy and hope has also become, in many ways, an enemy. For at every moment of revolution, the church herself is always divided. In every moment of crisis, the church is attacked both from within and from without. The same was true in the days of Peter and Paul. The same is true for us, just as it was for our forebears in France. The church is divided between juring and non-juring priests. Priests who take the oath, who accept the norm, and those who resist. It's what Our Lady spoke of when she spoke that there would come a time when cardinal would oppose cardinal and bishop would oppose bishop. We see it. We see the chaos and confusion in the church between those who know the faith and those who claim to be Catholic. We see it. And it is a source of pain, as well it should be. To see the bride of Christ so weakened, so diminished in our own time, that should be a source of constant pain for us who love the church. So what is the solution? What is the remedy? What are we to do in these difficult times in which we live? We have not yet been brought to the point of armed rebellion. And we do not know if that is God's plan for us. We are not there yet. What we must do is, first of all, recognize the reality of the times in which we live and not imagine that there is a social, political, or economic solution for the situation in which we find ourselves. We cannot look to any Savior other than Christ. And that is why it is so important that we once more seek the peace of Christ in the reign of Christ. The social reign of Christ the King is the natural end of our understanding of who Christ is. Some of you will remember the question that our Lord asks of his disciples in the Gospel as he takes them into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples begin to give the hearsay, what they've heard the crowds saying. Some say John the Baptist come to life again. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then our blessed Lord turns the tables on them and says, but you, who do you say that I am? And it is Simon Peter who gives the unexpected answer, the supernatural answer, the revealed answer. 
The answer that could never have come from the mouth of a first century Jew, but could only come from the mind and the heart of a man who is open to the movement of the Holy Ghost, who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. My brothers and sisters, what are we to do in these difficult times? It's very simple. We must proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. There is no other answer. There is no other solution under the sun than for us to be the men and women that God has called us to be. For we must answer the question that our Lord poses to us. Who do you say that I am? The modern world is willing to give its answer to the question, who is Christ? Look it up on YouTube. There's more than a million videos that will tell you who Christ is. And they begin with the atheists who declare that Christ is a myth. Jesus of Nazareth never existed. There is no historic archaeological evidence to prove that there was such a man from Galilee in the first century. And so they dismiss him as a myth. Then there are those who say, well, surely there must have been such a man. But surely he was just another rabbi like so many others, perhaps maybe a miracle worker, certainly a moralist, a teacher, maybe a prophet like so many others. Certainly we might be able to acknowledge him as a religious figure like Buddha or Muhammad or a philosopher like Aristotle or Socrates, but then again, how many people pay that much attention to Socrates? And so Jesus is dismissed as just another historic figure, just another teacher among many. Then there are those who profess to be Christian. But my brothers and sisters, there are 48,000 different denominations of Christian. Take your pick. They range all the way from those who believe that Jesus was an alien come from outer space to those who believe that he was merely a man touched by God to those who believe that perhaps maybe he shared in the demiurge coming from the one. There are those who profess to believe that maybe, just maybe, he was elevated above man but was not quite God. And then finally you get to our Catholic faith which professes and believes that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Son of the Eternal Father. And we come to the fullness of who Christ is. Only when we come to the fullness of our faith. Why is it so important that we be able to answer the question? Because this is the only thing that can cut through the chaos and confusion of our time. There is nothing else. For the devil has filled the world with words, talking heads, opinions, bitterness, sarcasm, cynicism. Nothing is sacred. The only thing that will be able to hold its own is truth itself. And it is our Lord who proclaims that I am the way and the truth and the life. And if we wish to be what we are called to be as sons and daughters of God, if we wish to be as we are called to be by virtue of our baptism and confirmation, the light of the world and the salt of the earth, if that is going to happen, 
then we must proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior and even as King. What does that mean? It means that it is not enough for us to say credo, I believe. For there are many, many people who believe, who believe in God, who even believe in Christ. There are many people who are able to say that I believe. In fact, if you were to take an opinion poll, as this modern world is so fond of, most people would say that they believe in God, or at least some form of higher power, just as they believe in life after death, and just as they believe that all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> most people believe. But there is a tremendous difference between living with faith, which is what most people do, and living by faith. There's a huge distinction. And that is where the rubber hits the road for us if we are to be truly under the reign of Christ the King. We must live by faith so that it informs and affects every aspect of our lives, that we see ourselves as sons and daughters of God the Father, as subjects of Christ the King, that we acknowledge His authority, and in doing so, we surrender the self-autonomy of the modernist mind, which says that man is the center of the universe, and that each individual man is the God of his own little universe. We surrender that falsehood as we bend the knee and proclaim that Christ and Christ alone is king. The material sign that we are willing to accept not only the divinity of Christ, but the authority of Christ is the enthronement of his sacred heart. The enthronement of the Sacred Heart was, some, was something that our blessed Lord asked of St. Margaret Mary when he appeared to her at Palamoel in France, in that darkened chapel at the Visitation Convent, when she was keeping watch by night before the Blessed Sacrament exposed in the monstrance. Our blessed Lord stepped out of the monstrance because he's there fully present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, fulfilling his promise to remain with us always until the end of time, he stepped out of the monstrance, drew back his cloak, and revealed his sacred heart and said, Behold, behold the heart which has so loved men, surrounded by such thorns of indifference and ingratitude. It's this image of the sacred heart, a living human heart, a wounded heart, surrounded by thorns yet on fire with love, at the center of which is the mystery of the cross. It is this image of the sacred heart that our blessed Lord begged to be enthroned in our homes as a reminder of his presence, his power, his love, to draw our hearts to his and it is the enthronement of the Sacred Heart, 
which you and I have to embrace at this particular moment in history. And it's not just the hanging of a picture. I remember as a boy in the late 70s, even early 80s, being able to go into Catholic homes and you walk in and always there was the picture of the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And then by 1989 and by 1990, you found those same pictures being offered at every garage sale. Why? Because Mama had died. Mama died. And the kids didn't want them. It didn't go with the decor. We wound up in the garage sale. And now, sadly, you can't even find them in the garage sales. Because they're gone. That generation has passed. It's not enough. It's not enough for us to hang a picture and to say the prayer. The enthronement of the Sacred Heart that we're talking about, the enthronement that is necessary in order for us to receive the grace that we need to persevere in the trials that lie ahead, that enthronement is something that has to happen in our minds and in our hearts and in our spirits as we come to know who Christ is in the fullness of our Catholic faith, as we come to adore who Christ is in the mystery of the Eucharist, as we come to thank our blessed Lord, recognizing that it is in Him and through Him and with Him that we receive everything that we have, And where does that adoration and that thanksgiving come to pass for us? Where is it joined with contrition and petition? Where does that enthronement take place in our minds and in our hearts except in the mystery of the holy sacrifice of the Mass? It's in that mystery that Christ is truly enthroned as we receive Him in Holy Communion. As we experience that mystery, so beautifully expressed by that one word, cum unum, to become one with. That's the whole end and purpose of our religion. That's the whole purpose of our faith, to bring us into unity with God the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit. That's why God made you, to become one with Him. And that's why the devil will do everything that he can in order to destroy that divine plan. And that's why we see the continued chaos in society and the chaos in the church. Because in order for the devil to be able to move his plan forward, he has to do what? He has to destroy the priesthood in order to destroy the mass. Because it is in and through the mass through that living, daily incarnation in which Christ is born, Christ dies, and Christ rises again each and every day. It's in that mystery in which the fullness of His love and grace is poured out that we find the peace that we hunger for. Christ will not be enthroned in our society till He is enthroned in our hearts. And Christ will not be enthroned in our hearts until we are committed to the mystery of our encounter with Him in the Mass. Until we are able to understand and to live the Mass. 
and to recognize that in that mystery, He gives us His own most sacred heart to set our hearts on fire. Until we have that conviction and until we are dedicated to the preservation of that mystery in which God draws close to us, to dwell with us, to be with us, then we will not be able to pass through what is coming. The people of the Vendée were able to resist. Not just because they had their faith, but because they had their priests. Faithful priests. Catholic priests. Who were willing to be priests even at the cost of their own lives. That's the price of being an alter Christus. The people of the Vendée were able to survive even that terrible genocide because they had the faith that had been taught to them that enabled them to see through death. And they were able to profess a faith which says that there is forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. As has been said already, that is our heritage. That is who we are. That is where we come from. And yes, that is where we are headed. That is where we are going. But our Lord is with us. And as he tells us over and over in the gospel, do not be afraid. For I am with you. It is up to us to remain with him. To remain with him in the mystery of our faith. And to remember the promise that our Lord has made. That the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No matter what may come. We must believe. We must hope. And above all persevere in that one holy Catholic and apostolic faith which has been handed on to us, which has been entrusted to us as the pearl of great price, and we, which we must commit ourselves to pass on whole and entire to those who will follow after us. Our faith is a sacred trust. Let us pray for the grace to be faithful. And I have to stop now because they told me 20 minutes, Father. <laughs> and I thought to myself, yeah, that ain't going to happen. <laughs>
uh, the pastor of the church at the time, uh, Monsignor Stephen Scott Shimano, was sitting in the front pew, and I was in the pulpit and giving the presentation. And during and there was no clock in the church. And during the presentation, I noticed Father Shimano listening very intently. <laughs> and there came a moment when Father Shimano shifted. And I realized that it was time to wrap it up. <laughs> and we went to the church hall, which is right next door. We went to the church hall afterwards. And there was a darling little old lady from Natchitoches, one of the grand dames of Natchitoches. And she came, and she, you know, you know, just very short, very petite little lady. And she came up to me and she said, Father, that's how we say it in North Louisiana, Father, that was a wonderful presentation. But you know, Father, the mind cannot handle with the rear cannot handle. And I looked at her and said, you're so right. Thank you.